Hi, I'm Dan Krinas, host of the Leader of Learning podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Karan Omani. He is the author of The Brain-Based Classroom, Accessing Every Child's Potential Through Educational Neuroscience, Rutledge 2021, and the founding principal of the Institute for Connecting Neuroscience with Teaching and Learning USA. So much to learn. You are going to love, love, love this talk. Thanks for listening. And by, by the way, it would be so, so cool if you shared this podcast and as well as the uh, the whole podcast itself with someone you know. You know, come on, like a colleague, a, a friend, a, a family member, and say, uh, hey, you should be listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And uh, give them the, the link. That'd be so cool. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. <music> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. After a long career in education, Dr. Kiran Omani consistently found himself questioning the status quo. While in the faculty room, we, he spoke in forward-looking platitudes and used phrases like equality of educational opportunity, but he realized that neither equality nor opportunity were associated with the education they were doling out. He couldn't help but wonder why our school systems were driving our children into bleak futures. So he decided to spend his career seeking the solution to one of the biggest problems we face today. How can we give every student an equal opportunity to love learning? That question led Kiran to develop the cognitive learning model taught in the brain-based classroom and the brain-based solutions training programs. Now you can develop the same understanding of the brain and use the same techniques he used to get incredible results for your child, classroom, and school system. Dr. Kiran Omani is the founding principal of the Institute for Connecting Neuroscience with Teaching and Learning USA, and author of the best-selling text, The Brain-Based Classroom, Accessing Every Child's Potential Through Educational Neuroscience, from Routledge in 2021. Today, model schools anchored to his brain-based pedagogic framework are thriving in India, across Africa, and here in America. You can find out more about Kiran and the Brain-Based Classroom at www.brainbasedsolutions.org. So much to learn today. Kiran, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everybody. Hi, hi everybody. And hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's awesome to have you here and I appreciate you joining me. And uh, this is so cool. Uh, uh, so let's start by talking about your book, The Brain-Based Classroom, Accessing Every Child's Potential Through Educational Neuroscience. Who's the audience and who are you trying to reach? So think about it this way, Steve. Um, in local parentis, when you have that beautiful infant and it's growing up and you want it, you want, all parents, I think, want their children to have better lives than them and they want them to have great education and opportunity. And so when we give our child away in local parentis, as we do in education, to the teacher and the school system, we expect that they're going to do a really good job. So anybody who comes in contact with that child needs to know this information. That includes superintendents and, and administrators, teachers, SPEDs, OTs, coaches, and I, I insist on the bus drivers, the, the cafeteria workers, the man who's cleaning out the, the, the hallways and the lockers and all that. They need to know this information if they're going to deal with that or 
even come into contact with my child anytime during the day. That's excellent. And uh, so, and I can see where all that audience needs to pay attention. So they got to be, be here. So this is cool. So in the introduction to your book, you note this. Every day in schools and homes, we see the results of genetics and environment at play. All right, so we got to talk about this. What do you mean, and um, why could this be good or bad? Yeah, this is a very central point, of course. Uh, you know, when a child is born, mom and dad are involved in terms of the 50% of genetics. And we know that the genetics are at play in the child because you can see that this child looks like mom, this child looks a little bit like dad, and they have propensities and they have skills that happen because they were born with this this family. However, once the child comes into the world, then there's experience that happens in the world. And we look at it from the point of the neuroscience. Um, if you think about gray matter versus white matter, gray matter means the amount of neurons and where the neurons are situated in the brain. And think about that infant, the baby that's just born, it's two seconds old. Does that child have the same amount of neurons as you, Steve, or me? And the answer, of course, is yes, they do. They have 100 billion neurons. That's that gray matter. However, they don't have the white matter structures yet to do things. So the child can't reach out and grab you and talk to you and laugh and run yet because it doesn't have those structures built. And that's why it takes a long time to raise a child. In fact, 25 or 26 years, because it takes time for the structures to grow and myelinate. And we distinguish between gray and white matter for that single purpose. So when I think about that in terms of school or home, then yeah, the child is born and has genetics from mom and dad. That's, that's potential. And now it's the experiences we give them and all of those skills and all of those capacities have to be learned. And that's why a teaching and our school system is so important. That's so powerful what you're talking about there, because just as, as you listen to what you're saying, it become, you, you really say, well, you could see where some families would um, really, really benefit their kids. And some <laughs> might have to, you know, have some struggles there and, uh, um, which would then change the experience in school as well. Right. And so it's really important for parents and teachers to understand that what they're saying, doing and thinking is having an impact on the child's, uh, as, as the child is architecting its brain. And, and when you think about brain, it's not just one colloidal mass, the brain itself. I like to look at it in a kind of a, it's try own way. Now, this is an oversimplification, simplification, but at the same time, it gives you a good idea of what's going on. When you think about it, an infant, a little child's brain, you're talking about the child has a cerebellum, that's a reptilian brain that's 300 million years in evolution. This brain has capacity for survival and struggle. And because we are homo sapiens, we actually have a really um, solid, um, well-developed um, survival instinct because we made it. You know, the Neanderthals and the Homo erectus and Homo africanus didn't make it, but we did. And so that child that shows up in your class has a very good reptilian brain. The second part then is the limbic brain where the emotions reside. And that's only 300 sorry 30 million years in evolution a much newer brain and that connects to the to the survival brain in a very important way which we as parents and teachers need to grow for that child and finally then you've got the prefrontal cortex which is right up here in front that's your executive function for predicting and planning and and arguing and and, and articulating and having fun and and that is only 3 million years in, in, in evolutionary history. So the three parts of the brain need to be architected in a correct way in the classroom and at home, or that child will not be able to engage in society like we want them to. 
This is, uh, you know, and, and you can see why, how important this would be for, for a classroom teacher to understand uh, the children that they're working with um, and uh, everything from how they think, what, what they may be thinking, what may interfere with how they're thinking, and that they don't necessarily see the world as the teacher does. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was also thinking that uh, this, there's a lot of teachers out there going, yeah, and administrators and teachers too, all right? We got, because <laughs> the administrator not thinking the same way the teacher does. So anyway, sorry, I had to go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's interesting enough that the teacher has the same brain. That's the point. And if the teacher understands the brain that they have, then they'll have an opportunity to be able to understand the child's brain and do things that will be a, what I would consider to be in coincidence with the brain as opposed to in opposition to the brain. Excellent. Uh, this, is, this is awesome. I, something that you introduced the reader to is what is meant by the mind and the brain. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and why it's important to understand it? It's very important to understand, in fact. And I, I'm, I'm going to borrow from my colleague, Dr. Kendall. He's from the Heward Hughes Medical Institute. We have to deal with medical um, institutes and, and, and people who do their research in, you know, they have white coats and they work with the brains, usually of rats and mice and rabbits and monkeys and all that. But at the same time, most of that information can be translated across into classrooms for for us to understand children. We don't want to do that same kind of, you know, um, experimentation with little infants, but we do with with animals and, and we are thankful for that. But for me, the mind is to brain as walking is to legs. In other words, the mind is where uh, all of your thinking, all of your predicting, all of your amazing experiences, when you run and play soccer, when you remember that awful rainy day when you were kicking in the mud and you couldn't get the ball out of the mud and yet you scored a goal, those are based on uh, functions of the brain that stay in the mind. And so for us then, the mind is 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 the capacity for all kinds of amazing things in the world. If our brain shut down, then the mind would be gone. In other words, the brain is the functionary part that allows us to be in the world and it's who we are. It defines who we are. At the same time, and this is really important, brain does not define your future. In other words, you're not stuck. You can, it's very malleable. You can do things to make your future different if you understand how the brain functions. So much I need to know, I think. I, when I read that, I read, read it multiple times. I went back and, and, and read your words several times just to, um, to kind of know that, uh, you know, this is a type of thing that we as educators have to recognize and we need to, to talk about. And I think this is, uh, I, I love this, this section um, so much. So, uh, you know, one of the things, this leads into um, a segment in chapter one. And there's, just as a note, it was very difficult to narrow down <laughs> My questions, because there's a lot of stuff in here. So kudos to you about uh, the information that you're you're covering in your book. The uh, um, in chapter one, there's a segment that is titled "Paradigm Shift." In this section, you note, I was convinced that I was doing them a favor. I thought I was setting them up for life. Can you talk about where you were going with this? Because I just pulled this little clip out of this bigger section right, where, yeah, where where right. you explain yourself. Yes. So that's the interesting thing, you know, when I, and yeah, we talked about this before we started the fact that I came from Ireland uh, to Seattle and I didn't even know Seattle existed. I just happened to end up there by mistake. 
And, and I came here for one weekend in 1982, and I'm still here. And I came to solve a problem that I was having in my school in Ireland, because I was trying to, I really was a good teacher, and I really wanted to do the right thing for children and help them to, to become amazing learners. But they hated school. They hated me. They hated the fact that there was homework. They just couldn't engage. And, and I thought, why could this be? Why, why wouldn't they have the best time of their lives? This is learning. The brain loves to learn. And, and then something crazy happened. And we had a spate of suicides in, in our village and, and one in particular in my school. And that kid was an amazing kid. And I thought, what a waste. At 13 years old, in, on his birthday, when his dad went to find him and had bought him a beautiful blue bicycle, he found him hanging in his closet. And it's like, oh, my God, we were not ready for that. We were not ready for the trauma. And I knew then I didn't know enough. And looking out, I thought, well, look at any place that says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they must know the answer. And I came here to pick up the answer and bring it back, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> I was naive, of course. I was young. And, and the point is that it's, it's just as complex here, and sometimes it's worse than what we were doing back there. And today, after COVID, it's now the, the, the suicide rates are rising, and the sad news is that it's younger in ages. And, and that makes me very sad because we do have the solution today, but it's hard to get people to see it because it's the education space is so complex. And so I thought I was doing the right thing by pushing these kids, by, by giving them lots of work and giving them lots of opportunity, but they weren't engaging. And I was actually causing them to be more uh, angry about school and life and me and, and, um, and, and I know the thing is, I, I, there must be a solution, and I spent the next 20 years looking for that solution. I was involved in programs with the National Science Foundation, and I was very lucky, really lucky to be at the right place at the wrong time, and I got pulled into the School of Nursing. I got to work with the NIH on a grant uh, for five years to look at the impact of marijuana and, and alcohol on adolescent brain. Now, the reason for that was that the state of Washington was just about to legalize marijuana and they needed to know. And I was thinking, I've got some teenagers at home, I need to know. And so I, I signed up as a co-PI on that project. And for five years, I got to work with these neuroscientists. And it suddenly dawned on me that these neuroscientists had all the information that I needed to know as a parent and as a teacher around things like attention, um, diet, sleep, exercise, all of these things that the, we as teachers and, and parents need to know about children growing up. That's excellent. And what a cool way to, to kind of discover that as you were involved in all this other research and so forth. And so, so I got to ask you, did you find an answer that you... I mean, yes, you yes. And that's the whole point. I mean, uh, it was such a shock to me to discover that I spent, what, 15 years in education and I never, ever mentioned brain. And yet it's the one organ we have to use in the classroom every day. And then the next thing I found out was everything I knew about brain was wrong. All the people who had told me about brain, and it's not their fault because back in the 1970s and 60s, we knew so much. But then in the, in the decade of the brain in 1990 to 2000, there was so much information came out and so much new technology invented. So we knew about PET scans and fMRIs, but we didn't know about diffusion tensile imaging and all this new stuff. You can see in the brains, tractography, electrocorticography, these medical people were able to walk down into, a, into the striatum and look at all the different neuron types and to see what they were doing. And then they were able to go in and maybe do an informed incision and in, to get out a, a, you know something like a, 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 a brainioplasm or something. But we as educators, we don't get to see into children's brains. 
All we get to see is the child is acting up or is behaving funny or is not doing what we want him to do and is screaming at us and throwing chairs and fighting. And suddenly I realize, oh, oh, this is this is incredible. Now you can take that behavior and look for the neural substrate. And that's what I learned. That is so powerful. And uh, just as a note, I'll take this part out that I'm getting ready to say because um, it really doesn't fit. But what you've just made me think about is something that I left out of my story before we started talking is February 1st, I was in a 10 hour surgery to remove a tumor from my brain. And it's it, when they discovered it because of some, I was having, I thought I was having vertigo and stuff like this. Yeah, and, right. and cause I would suddenly have problems walking and where I, you know, we kind of stumble and stuff and all of a sudden the world kind of felt spinny spinning. And, uh, um, one doctor said, I know what you got. And he said, but I can't diagnose you because it's not my field and sent me to these different experts. And the next thing you know is right. I'm telling them, let's do it. And, you know, to, yeah. to be able to say where I am now, there's some residual things, but at the same time, I never in a million years would I thought, I mean, after I went through it and the first time I opened my eyes after the surgery, the whole room was flipped. And for several times after that day, days and the doctor, the neurologist told me, he said, just, go with it. <laughs> he goes, cause it will correct itself. He said, that's your yeah, brain yeah. trying to figure out um, what's happened to it. And yes, yes, yes. I don't know why you're cutting this out. This is the most important piece. Okay. When, I, when I teach my teachers today, I let them see diffusion, tension, imaging. I see to look at what the doctors are looking at. When they see that tumor in your brain, they're making an informed decision of where do I cut? I don't want to take out the white matter structures that have to do with his eyes and his ears and his fingers and his toes. And I want to just get at that tumor and take it out without doing damage to his white matter structures. Well, guess what? As parents and teachers, our job is to grow those white matter structures. And we need to know that with the brain has so much plasticity that even if it's flipped, flipped on Monday, by Friday, you can see properly. The brain will fix itself. And the brain has a capac amazing capacity for, for, for learning. We're hardwired animals to learn. And yet, Children say school sucks. I hate school. So either either their brains are screwed up or we're doing it wrong. And I guess what? We were doing it wrong for a long time. That is so just so powerful. And just just a note, one last story with my thing. I mean, it's, you know, at first it was rough and trying to figure out how to walk. And the, the room did right itself. I'd open my eyes finally and everything's not 190, 180 degrees flipped or whatever. Um, my degrees are for. <laughs> I, it was at, at least a kind of like a 90 degree thing. And, but it was, it was the weirdest thing. If, and, uh, but eventually that changed itself. And thanks to some medical staff who helped me, um, before the therapists started working, we, they started saying, let's, let's get you up and let's try and walk you in different places. And, you know, and, and eventually I was able to a uh, few therapy, but do it on my own. And I can't, yeah, you know, it's it's amazing when you talk about being able to learn again, and it's it's absolutely it fix itself. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask you a quick question. When you were in that flip situation, did you dream upside down? Or do you remember? I can tell you what I dreamed, um, and because I told the doctors, um, because in right after I I woke up from the the surgery, I had I had all these monsters in my dreams, and these mm -hmm. were not monsters mm -hmm. like Frankenstein or Dracula yeah. or things like that. They were just weird creatures. And, uh, and then it progressed from that to thinking that I had, and 
the doctor told me that that was the steroids. <laughs> he said, people always talk about these weird monsters. And he, he said, that's the steroids. He said, they're, they're doing, they're making your brain think of, um, this type of stuff. And that would wake me up. And, and then, uh, when they slowly took me off the steroid, all of a sudden I had, I started, all these people started coming together, um, that shouldn't be in the same land, but it felt so real. <laughs> and it's like, why are, you know, and, and I'd wake up because I'd go, what in the world? And I, you have to know, I had all these headaches and stuff like that, that I still, um, I deal with them with caffeine, not pills. And, uh, which is cool. Cause the doctor said, let's, let's, he goes, I'm yeah. going to give you a reason to be able to drink soda now. So, <laughs> or coffee. <laughs> and, um, and they're supposed to go away eventually, but the, the funny thing was, was that, so I had those dreams with the people that shouldn't have been together, but it was so real. And then that led to, I kept thinking I had work that was due and, you know, I had these projects that I'm working on and I'd wake up going, God, I got to get this done. And then I'm like, it's three o'clock in the morning. What am I, I'm not, I'm not even at work yet. I'm not, I'm not back at work. Cause I was out for several months. And uh, so anyway, I don't know if that helps you, but that's, that's pretty right. Much the progression of my dreams until I finally got control of that. But yeah. Yeah. And so, so think about that, but every single child they, that, you know, every brain is unique. So their, their brains are trying to figure out the world. They're trying to figure out, who am I? Why am I? What am I doing? And now they're making me learn this stuff. And, and the problem is, and we'll be talking about this in a minute, every child is wired differently. And depending on the genetics, because we mentioned genetics earlier on, mom and dad gave us genes. And if mom gave, we'll say, a short expression of the serotonin transporter gene, then that means I won't have as much serotonin as the, as the kid who got a long expression. Now, if dad also gives a short, that child would be a short short. And there's three, there's three opportunities here. If you think about it, you can have a short from mom, a short from dad. You can have a short from mom and a long from dad, or you can have a long from both. And I happen to be a long short. That means I'm in between. So the way it shows up in the classroom is a short, short child will be very sensitive. A long, long child will be very resilient based on the amount of serotonin that they are being, that's processing in their brains because the, 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 the serotonin transporter gene is doing its job. And, and so when we look at children, we don't look at children today as, oh, that's a bad child. That child is very bad behavior. This is a good child able to study. This is a compliant child. This is an at-risk child. We don't do that anymore like we used to. We stop labeling children. Instead, we look, say, uh-oh, I've got myself a really sensitive short, short child over here. And that child needs more oxytocin, needs more dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. So in my classes, instead of doing science and math, I have fun games where the children are building up this amazing amount of neurotransmitters that's giving them the serotonin and the dopamine they need to feel wanted and to feel loved and to feel engaged in the class. And then when I say, we're going to learn about seven and seven equals 14 today, they'll say, yay, more fun learning. And it's a different thing than saying, uh-oh, we're doing math again. And Mary is always better than me at math. I can never get past the first few seconds. And my brain is already shut down. And it has to do with my capacity for even engaging because my working memory is so small. So this is a I'm so glad you talked about your your tumor because now we're in the brain and we realize that this is where the child is as well. And none of us have mental models about working memory. And so if, I, if you ask me, how big is your working memory? And, and, you, and you're looking at your brain, you say, well, you know, I know it's up here in the front, 
Um, if my working memory can hold, we'll say the size of my cup of coffee, if that's what it can hold, well, the rest of my brain can hold 15 times every grain of sand on every beach on the planet. Now, do you see what, do you see what I'm talking about? Do you see how small my working memory is? Yes. And a child's working memory is even smaller than that. So it's like a pinhead. And therefore, when the child comes in and the cafeteria worker says, hey, don't put your bag over there. Or the driver of the bus says, sit in the back and don't do that. And, and, and so the child is already traumatized by other people. And they've shown up in your class and you say, hey, where's your homework? And how come you're not sitting in the right desk? And get over there and stop talking to Mary. And so the child's working memory is now full because it has no space left. And then you want me to do math and science and French and algebra. Are you kidding me? There is no hope in hell that you can get past the child's working memory. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, by the way, I think it works for, uh, you know, men and women talking together, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. It's all about brain. It's all about brain. That is awesome. <laughs> and that's so important to know that information because especially like you just said, I mean, if you got a child who that morning, um, whatever, let's say they left their hundred dollar calculator on the bus and then they, yeah. and then they get to school and they're trying to tell somebody about it and they left their, their book pack, their backpack in the front office along, yeah. along with, what did I do with my backpack? And then they come to your class and you're, and you're asking them, uh, so did you remember to bring your homework? And they're like, Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and their whole, the whole day is ruined. It's Sometimes a- the whole week is ruined. And the bad news is with technology today, because we, with technology is everywhere. Uh, the teachers have smart boards and they have all kinds of systems to show the names of the kids on the class. And with a flick of a, a switch on their computer, they can show a child move up or down on the color grade. So if I'm as, I start off in green and suddenly you put me into orange and now I'm in red, well, my whole life is in trouble and I can see it on the board. Everybody can see it on the board. It's public shaming. And not only that, I can press another button and there's an email sent out to mom and dad and the school psychologist and the, and the principal and they all know now that I'm bad today. And so my brain is like fried and you want me to do math and science? Are you kidding me? It's impossible. That is so, so right. So much on the money there. And it's, it's just, it, if, you, if you taught in the past, it really explains a lot of experiences that you, that you had with the children as you start realizing, eh, this is probably not the best, <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not coming out with the best outcome here. So uh, thanks for explaining that. Uh, it, you know, one of the things I gotta, I gotta go, go to is, you know, uh, in chapter two, this is, I'm pulling this from there. How then did teaching and learning get so enamored with rewards and punishments? And I had to go here because this is something right. that I, I, I've had these discussions recently with people about, uh, rewards and punishments. So can you talk about that? Yeah, let's start. I mean, this is the crisis of schools, in fact, because um, because we all assume that if I give a reward to somebody that they're going to love it. And, and in fact, uh, in schools, we've tried this forever with the token economies. We make up the special money and the special gifts and stars and all kinds of things. And, and here and we've known for the last 50 years that the more we reward people, the more we we, we do damage to their creativity and their capacity for doing any mental issues. Uh, any mental uh, processing. Uh, the more we punish people, of course, yeah, they, the brain is always going to learn. So they learn something else now, defense mechanisms, and I'm not good at this, and they're better than me. So so we're beginning to label and stratify children based on rewards and punishments. And here's the interesting thing. This is all Skinner's work, of course, in behaviorism back in the 1950s and 60s. Skinner says very clearly, 
don't punish dogs, don't punish people, do not punish children. He had a daughter and the fact that, that he had her in school wouldn't allow his daughter to be punished. And he's right, of course. And at the same time, uh, when we reward children, it only works 50% of the time. And that was a big crisis for me. Why only 50%? And if you look at the results of the um, the American education system, the 1st of October, every year, you've got the nation's report card. And if you look at those results, you never get above 50%. That means that we're, we've, we have this amazing educational engine. We've got billions and billions and billions of dollars. And yet, in the richest country in the world, with all these amazing people, we can never get above 50%. It makes no sense up to the point where you don't understand the brain. It actually makes every sense in the world when you get into the neuroscience of it. And here's why. Um, when you think about those um, sensitive, again, we go back to the genetics and the epigenetics, meaning the, the environment that's, that's reinforcing the genetics. I've got a very sensitive child and that sensitive child is going to have his brain shut down and I mean shut down because the amygdala, which processes information, will send it to the, to the involuntary back part of the brain, the reptilian brain, which can only do four things, freeze, fight, flight, or fawn. And freeze is, you know, when you show up at the class and, and the child is sitting there with their pencil and they're looking at the book and they've done nothing and you say, Where, what happened? Why didn't you do any work for the last 15 minutes? Everybody else is working. And you look into the child's eyes and you see the lights around, there's nobody home. And you realize that child is just frozen. And then there's another child and, and they're, they're, they're fighting. They're already throwing books and picking on some kid because they, are, they can't process either. Their brain is in freeze, fight, flight, or fawn. And then flight means, can, I've got a pain in my belly. Can I go to the nurse? I need to go to the bathroom. Can I get a drink of water? I need to sharpen my pencil. Anything but focus on the work. Their flight. And sometimes they run away from the school. That's kind of obvious. But, but there, there's other ways of flight. And then fawn. Fawn is where I just don't want any more stress. I'll do anything that the teacher says. I'll do anything for anybody. I will just agree with you. But I, there's no way the child is making any decisions or, or processing information in their brain. They're just trying to keep calm. And, and so these children are not learning. All they're doing is surviving in a classroom that they don't like to be in. And that's that's 50% of our students in every class, in every school in the country, 50% are not able to engage because the system we're using is causing their brains to shut down. And that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you, you just think about the different uh, experiences. If, if you're listening, you know, when you're listening to this, you, you, you cannot just ignore the thoughts that you might have about, you know, the different kids you're interacting with, the assignments you're giving or the way they were. Um, if you're talking to the same kids in the morning that you're talking to in the afternoon, it just all kinds of different uh, um, experiences that you've probably had that if you recognize the signs, you'd probably realize I may not be really reaching them. <laughs> it, it goes a little bit further than that too, because when you think about it, there's children who are dysregulated at age four, five, six, seven, and, and then they grow up and they leave school and they get into jobs and now they're working for Microsoft or Amazon or some of these big companies, they're still dysregulated. And, and, and as adults, we call it executive function impairment. It's the exact same thing. They can stay on task, focus, pay attention, initiate tasks, finish tasks, and they cause companies a fortune in HR because they're dealing with people who can't show up on Monday mornings. They can't, they can't collaborate with their buddies and they're scared to death that somebody would find out that they're, that, that, that they're not able to do their jobs. This is an incredible, expensive way to do business. And we can solve it in the schools 
at age five, six, and seven easily if we know about brain. We can solve it in the workplace too. It's a little bit more expensive. Gotcha. So I got to make sure that uh, before we um, move on through this area, there's you get into this this whole um, section about two terms, affect and effect. Can you take us there for a little bit? Yeah, I want to go back to, it's exactly 100 years ago, 1922-23. So 100 years ago in Columbia College in New York, you had Thorndike. Edward Thorndike was was the very first uh, educational um, psychologist. He worked on trying to understand how how people learn or how uh, actually animals. He had Cheshire cats and, and he built this puzzle box, this famous puzzle box. And, and the, he put the cat in there and there was two ways that, that you had to get out. You had to do two things to get out. One was you had to put your paw down between the slats and, and move a little lever. And then you had to push your nose against a string and then the, the lever opened and boom, you're out. And of course, the cat had to be hungry and there was a beautiful bowl of warm, tasty milk and fish outside the, the box. So the cat's going crazy in the box. And of course, by accident, accident it puts his paw down between the slats and presses his head against the string and the door opens and the cat gets the food well and he's documenting all of this and the first time it takes a couple of hours the next day he does the same thing and and for a whole week and over time the cat gets faster at getting out and by by friday the cat's out <laughs> the cat knows the milk's outside i know how to put my paw there and my nose there and i'm out and he defined that as the law of effect and an effect in in psychology means emotions. Uh, you know, it also when you're writing sometimes and you come across, should I say effect or effects? It should be a or e. It's hard to know. Is it a, is it a noun or is it a verb? And and so beyond that, in psychology, effect also has to do with emotions. But back in 1922 and 23, they didn't they wouldn't give any credence to the fact that cats have emotions. Well, I don't know if you've ever had cats or dogs, but we know they have a lot of emotions. Very much and they, so. <laughs> yes, and they can talk to us and tell us things and scratch us when they want. And the point is that he changed the law of effect to the law of effect. So it went from emotions to output results. And guess what? We've been stuck in outputs and results to this day. We're still doing these high stakes tests that cause children to be very anxious. And at the same time, we want the effect. The effect. And uh, when we change school and go for emotions, in other words, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're in my class today. Look at that amazing new shoes you've got. Come over here and give me a hug and then sit down and we're going to have the best fun ever. And, and in fact, don't sit down, get on the trampoline and have some fun on the trampoline. We'll do our spelling tests on the trampoline today. And when we go in there with affect and emotions, we have incredible capacity for children to engage and, and, to, and to actually be successful. So when we go for the effect, so there'll be a quiz here in five seconds and put your pens down. And when I say go, pick your pen up and answer those 10 questions. That's effect. And boy, does that have a different impact. When you stay on the A as opposed to the E, then you can have outcomes that make sense. I think this is so incredible. And we really know probably nothing about all this. <laughs> and, well, uh, and guess what? I didn't either. It was, it was a great journey to figure this out. And, and I, I have to thank the school of nursing because I did not want to be in the school of nursing. And yet that's where I met these neuroscientists who gave me all the information that I needed about, about the brains of our children. And boy, does that change how I raise my children? That's so awesome and powerful. And I, I just, uh, I appreciate you sharing. I, you know, one of the things that you also get into in your book is, is, is 
technology and the student. I mean, the modern student has so many different learning tools that can also become distractions. Uh, can you talk about the current student technology, neural connections, and the teacher? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, schools, in fact, uh, I would have stayed in the university except for technology. What happened was I was asked to do a, a talk at the convention center in Seattle, and it was a 15 or 20 minute talk about neuroscience. And I asked the professor who sent me down there because I was working on a project and he said, look, we need somebody to go down to this 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 um, this um, symposium and do a, do a 15 or 20 minute talk. And I said, what's the audience? He says, I don't know. Look it up. And so I looked it up and I said, oh, my goodness, it's an IT conference. Why would I? I know nothing about IT. It's all technology. I know I couldn't even get my computer to start. Right. And, and he said, look, we've signed you up. Go down. And so I went down. And when I got there, uh, it was room up on the third floor. And as I was going in, I realized like there was a huge line of people out the door and down the stairs. And I, I asked the last person uh, in front of me, I said, which one are you going to? And he says, I'm going to the neuroscience. I said, I thought this is an IT conference. He said, it is. I said, why would you want neuroscience? And he said, well, you know, we're we're working in schools and we have uh, all this problem because teachers have given the kids uh, iPads and, and and all kinds of technology and stuff. And and our job is to keep them going. And the problem is the kids are now breaking our IT stuff. And and my job has gotten into a nightmare state because they're losing their stuff. They're pulling off the delete keys. They're throwing their computers. They're losing them in McDonald's. It's just a mess. And, and, and I said, and you think that neuroscience will solve this? He said, well, we're hoping so because there's nothing else working. It's worse now than it was before we had technology. And, and I thought, oh, this is even worse than I thought. Now, what are we going to talk about? So as I walked in there, there was a fire marshal. The room could hold four, 40 people, and there was about 180 people at the door. Wow. And he and he, he wouldn't let them in. And as soon as the fire marshal left, they all came in anyway and sat on the floor. And, and every word I said was like gold. And at the end, I had a line of people, and, and they wanted me to come to their schools. And one teacher in particular said this to me, and, and it stays with me to this day. She said, if what you say is true, then I should be able to myelinate a new structure for Johnny. And I said, who's Johnny? She said, that's one of my 10-year-olds who's causing my school to shut down every day because he's so violent and so crazy. And we're scared to death that we're going to do damage to him or to, or to the school. And, and I said, yes, you should be able to myelinate a new structure for Danny. This is like you with your brain upside down and over a week it straightens itself out. Well, we can do that for children because brain is so plastic and we can, we can build new structures in a child's brain to, to cause their behavior to be okay. The problem is if the child is already in a hyper vigilant state and is already having difficulty at home and all that it's very complex and and so the teacher's job is really difficult in terms of if i'm supposed to teach all this curriculum and i need effect then i'm going to have to discipline the child and punish the child and all that well that doesn't work and so if the, if the teacher understands that it's about making relationships with the child understanding that the child needs to trust and and feel part of so you're talking about oxytocin serotonin dopamine and norepinephrine and if you do that you can myelinate a new structure in the child because the brain has a hundred billion neurons in that child with ten thousand uh, connections at every synapse so the child has trillions and trillions and trillions of potential so why couldn't you build a new structure so of course that's what happened this teacher came back to me three weeks later and said you won't believe how this child johnny is doing he's now the best kid in my class 
And that's where it started. I, I moved out of the university and went into the front lines of education, working with teachers. And today I have thousands and thousands of teachers who know how to do this in their classrooms, not only in, 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 in America where I work, but also because of COVID all across Africa, 26 countries in Africa and all across India with thousands of teachers in India and New Zealand and in Europe, because people are so desperate to solve this educational problem. This is something else. I, and, you know, I, I, just listen to his words. And, and by the way, your book's easy to read, um, easy to, to think about. The only thing it's going to make, what it's going to make you do is go back and reread. Because <laughs> it's like, what did I, oh my gosh. I just, you know, and you start thinking about what you've either done or uh, how you've run class or how you've worked with kids. It, and now you start thinking, well, maybe I should have done that a little differently now. And, and uh, which is you know, really what you're getting them, you're wanting them to do, which is to think about uh, um, the difference they can be if uh, they approach it right. And, I, you know, one of the things uh, I, I got to ask you, if a teacher or school administrator wanted to get involved in brain-based solutions training programs, how would they get started? I mean, what should they expect in the beginning? Yeah, so, so um, started an organization in Seattle, and we do face-to-face -face courses, but we also do online. Because of COVID, we were very much online. In fact, last week I had 150 teachers in a hall for a whole week, and we had the best time ever. And those teachers are now re-energized, re, re children in the post-COVID world. This week, I've got 150 teachers online, and I have 25 champion teachers who are already trained to be able to help in the breakout rooms and help teachers. And, and the best part is that in my research, I came across and, and worked on a pedagogic model that's brain aligned. So if you use this pedagogic model, children are already going to be amazing learners because the model is designed for brain. And so if you come to the... Um, the brainbasedsolutions.org website, you'll, you'll get links there to take you into the courses. And, and we work with schools all year long. But in the summertime, when teachers have, you know, they get, they get credit for uh, upping their, their careers with, with this new training, this changes everything for them. They say things like, oh, my God, how come I've been teaching for 25 years? I knew nothing about brain. Yeah, none of us did. That's the crazy thing. I just happened to be in that room at the morning that they that the nurse says I need a learning scientist because the NIH won't give me the grant until I get a learning scientist. Well done for the NIH for noticing that because because uh, nurses and and neuroscientists don't want to be in classrooms and and the information they have in their ivory towers needed to be translated into classrooms. That's so awesome. I, and I appreciate it because you're going to have a lot of people going, I got to find out more. So good stuff. I, you know, um, Karan, if you had the opportunity to speak to an audience of high school teachers where you were the closing keynote to, a con to that conference, what is the one thing that you would want them to remember as they prepare for the coming school year and their first day with kids? Oh yeah, that you know I do this all the time, and I and I have thousands, thousands of teachers that I talk to. And guess what? The one thing that they need to take away is that teachers are the most important people in this in this program. If you have teachers and you have students and you have parents, and and you you need both. You, sorry, you need the three because it's like a three-legged stool. Teachers are number one, but the first thing is they have to understand their own brains first. If they don't understand how their brain works, that means how does memory happen? What's working memory? What's What's the phonological loop? What's the visuospatial sketch pad? If you're not playing in the visuospatial sketch pad for children, then you shouldn't be teaching. If you're not in the phonological loop and understanding how to make mistakes and grow white matter structures, you shouldn't be teaching. And guess what? 
99.9% of teachers don't know that. It's not their fault. The, the, ta- the training programs that we got never mentioned brain. And if it did, it was just basically that you've got neurons and you need to work with them. And, and, and sadly, um, I was a product of that and, and, and all my colleagues were. And we didn't know enough to be able to deal with the crisis that we have, the trauma, the, 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 the pain, the sleep. The, most people don't even know that the learning happens in sleep at nighttime. It's not in the classroom. If the child isn't getting enough sleep and if not getting the cycles between non-REM and REM sleep, that those dendritic spines that happen for memory just go away. We can see that in, 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 in DTI experiments. We can see memories grow on spines and dendrites. I mean, if they don't know that vocabulary, they can't even think about how to put the memories into the dendrites. You see what I'm saying? And so, so teachers are the most important and this stuff is easy once you start to focus on brain. That's excellent. Excellent. I, I, you know, uh, we're getting ready to close. And uh, um, before we do that, can you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more? Yeah. So, so connect with me at the brain based, the brain based classroom, or sorry, the brain based solutions. My book is called brain based classroom, but the, the website is the brain based solutions.org. And we have courses, we have all kinds of information. There's, there's podcasts on there. There's free giveaways, all that stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a very simple website focused on teachers getting materials to do their jobs. Excellent. And I will have this uh, linked in the show notes so they can find it easily that way as well. So good stuff. So I got, Curran, I've got two more questions for you that have nothing to do with what we've been talking about. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, hey, you know what? People say that to me every day because I'm no spring chicken. I, you know, I wish I'd known this when I was 20, but you know, I didn't learn it until I was 55. And, and here's the interesting thing. I am now working harder than I've ever worked in my life, and I've never been so inspired because we see the impact of what teachers can do and parents can do with children every day. When you can get that child's brain to light up, they say, ah, I get it. I know how to do this. And that's all we want because teachers are that kind of people. We love to see children be successful. Excellent. Excellent. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, you know, if, if, if you look at the acknowledgements of my book, I've got JK and JB. And I, and I say that because both of them used to call themselves JK and JB. JK was the man in Ireland who got me to leave Ireland. He says, if you want a solution, you have to get out. And I said, I don't want to get out. And he says, well, then that's okay. But if you want a solution, you have to get out because we, there is no more here. And, and um, his name was John K, John K Barry. And, and he's passed away now. And when, when I would meet with him, he wouldn't meet in his office. We'd meet on the beach. We'd have to swim out a mile, do three surface dives, come back, and then walk for five miles. And that's when we talked about education. Amazing man. And the second man was the man I met at the University of Washington. His name was John Bransford. And I just got back from Vanderbilt this week in Nashville because there was a memorial service for him. And his life work had to do with anchored instruction. And he, he met people like Furstein and Ann Brown and John Brewer and all these people. Amazing man. It's like having your own private uh, Pestalozzi or your own private, you know, John Jack Rousseau with you. And I worked with him for 15 years. And we together designed this course, which was called Teaching uh, the uh, the uh, Bringing Neuroscience into Teaching and Learning. He and I set that course up. And then... The sad thing is that he got, like you, that a brain tumor and he never recovered from it. And so John ended up with um, 
with, with uh, dementia and 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 basically lost connection to who he was. It was very sad to watch his last ten or fifteen years. And and I got to be at his uh, memorial service last week and made a talk. And I made people laugh because I'm going to tell you one last thing about him. When we were up at the at the we we did our research at the Boeing company and we worked with the engineers who moved from seven 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 to seven eight seven, moving from metals to plastic. A huge big shift in Boeing, and of course engineers had to unlearn and relearn, and that was our job to help them. And so they we were talking they were talking about tools, and John said to me, "Why are they always talking about tools? Because I know what tools are." And they the engineer says, "You need to come out and see the tool." And and, and I thought to John, "Well, we know about hammers and saws and chisels and stuff." When we get out the Boeing, they give us helmets and they give us these glasses we had to wear, and then they took us on a tool. The tool was four stories high. It was a half a mile long, and there was. 500 people working on the tool just to keep the tool going wow. and there was and that's how they built the planes and so when we get up to the top of this thing john was holding on to my elbow and 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 uh, he whispered to me there must be a lot of secrets here because i'm looking down on, the, on a 777 or something and and there's a big crane lifting a, an engine onto it and, and it's huge and i said to john i don't know why why do you think that he says because they won't let us see anything and i said what do you mean he says, I can't see anything with these glasses they gave me. And I reached over and I pulled this, this strip off the front of the glasses to keep, <laughs> you know, to keep it protected. And then he goes, oh. <laughs> In other words, when we step into a different environment, we're like children. We don't know. And, and every engineer would know to pull that strip off the glasses. And so we had come up four stories and poor John was blind <laughs> all the ways up. He could see just shadows. And, and that man did the same thing for me. He pulled all the shadows out of my vision because he was an amazing mind and we discussed education and the last thing he said to me before and because I didn't see him again after that when, when his brain began to unwind he said to me what we have discovered here he said and puts everything about education it pales into shadows everything else doesn't matter this is the where the rubber meets the road when you get into neuroscience in the classroom then you can actually teach children that is so awesome. Thank you for sharing a story. I, that's that is so cool. And the, the whole thing about the the strip over the front and, you know, oh my gosh. And what, and what you're doing is trying to help us pull that strip off. And I think that's so cool. Love it. Karan, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing the brain-based classroom, accessing every child's potential through educational neuroscience and brain-based solutions uh, with me today. What an awesome book and program you've created and wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.